Welcome to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and today we're going to witness a Muslim-Jewish dialogue. My two guests, one Muslim and one Jewish, are going to engage in a conversation about the Quran and the Torah. What are the similarities? What are the differences? How should texts be interpreted? And perhaps most importantly, how should difference be managed? Hi, Ed. Ibrahim, you made it. I made it, yeah. So, sorry that I kept everyone Rick, waiting. No yeah. problem. Good to Come see to you. Ed. Welcome, everybody. And particularly you, Ibrahim, with the excitement in the family. Yeah, it's, uh, so tell us. <laughs> it was all, all un- unexpected. Um, well, I, I, what I brought with me, Ibrahim, because mm-hmm. I, I was also coming back on the train, I brought in a bottle of non-alcoholic ah. <laughs> rose, rose grape. grape. So Sounds I thought we great. might kind of just kind of celebrate yeah. or, or yeah. wish well to your son. Yeah, oh, that's that very thoughtful, yeah. And it's not. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. So let's let the glass uh, uh, That's a nice surprise. Uh, well, I hope it goes really well. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, all the signs are looking promising. Cheers. Good health. Cheers. Good health. Congratulations. Today, when there are clear tensions within our communities and between our communities, our listeners will be eavesdropping on a conversation, a dialogue, and I hope listening in some of the most shocking stories that we have in our traditions. And I think there'll be a few surprises ahead. Well, my first guest is Sheikh Mogra, an imam from Leicester and a member of the Muslim Council of Britain. It's a delight to have you, not only as a learned person, but as a friend and someone I've known for many years, and also based at the Cambridge Muslim College just down the road. And my Jewish guest is Rick Sofa, chairman of the Sephardi Centre in London, and also a member of the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardi community in London, and I believe the oldest synagogue in Europe. The oldest one, which has had continuous worship, at least in its principal synagogue, Bevis Marks. And you've been a member there ever since you were a child? Yeah. Right, right. Um, So, welcome to you both. Now, I suppose for our listeners, one of the things that we need to explain is how this came about. I mean, you've both been part of the Wolf Institute, you've both been on this journey. And there we were in Sarajevo together, meeting members of the local faith communities, and it was a Friday night, wasn't it? I think, Rick, tell us what, what happened. Well, this was an amazing event because the whole trip to Sarajevo was so interesting, seeing the Jewish, Muslim and Christian communities that were there. And on the Friday night, I thought it was my turn to say a few words. And on a Friday night or on a Shabbat, you'd normally say a few words about the parasha of the week. Yes. But I thought I'd have to do it in an interfaith context. Mm. So I went searching through the parasha of the week. It was in the end of March. And the parasha was a really long one all about the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and all it was talking about was the number of rods and curtains and the dimensions and so many cubits and all of this, and I just couldn't find anything. And I was getting right to the end, and then right at the end, it said that the Holy Spirit, Shachan, came and sat on the tabernacle, from which comes the word Shekhinah. And there I just knew that there was this word in the Quran, Sakina. And then we discussed it, and you found me the word in the Quran, and then we, you, you read very beautifully that verse which contained the word Sakina from That's right. the Quran. That was quite a good moment. For me, it was the beginning of something that I'd never thought 
I'd never thought about that. Look for similarities and differences between our two scriptures, and then to share those in 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 this manner. I know there is the sharing of scripture, where each person talks about their own scripture, and the other person tells us what they think about that passage. But to actively look for words and aspects of both our scriptures, which uh, go hand in hand, which complement each other, but at times also are at loggerheads. I think it uh, has got me really interested. Because we don't actually share scripture, do we? I mean, one of the no, interesting it's... things is that um, in the Jewish-Christian conversation, there's a certain amount of scripture that is shared, that is the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, very slight differences, but for the most part, the same text. Now, in the Muslim Jewish conversation, it's interesting, you talk about shared words, but it's not quite the same as a shared text, is it? And what's rather strange is that as Muslims, we fully believe in and acknowledge Jewish and Christian scripture, the Torah and the Injil and the Zabur, the, the Torah, the Gospels and the Psalms. And yet, as Muslims, when we ought to be engaging more actively with those scriptures, we do very little of that. If anything, a vast majority of Muslims engage with the Quran and nothing else. That's what I wanted to ask you about, exactly that, because there's this verse I've seen in the Quran where the Quran, it says, Musaddiq confirms. Yes. I don't know if that's the right yeah, translation. How would yes. you translate that? The one that authenticates or that endorses or okay. that confirms endorses or confirms yeah, the Torah and the that which gospels. was revealed before to Moses and to Jesus. So is it surprising that Muslims don't generally pick up a copy of the book which the Quran confirms? Yeah, and, and there are perhaps understandable reasons. One is about competency and the ability to understand this. There was a time, Rick, I remember when I was a young boy growing up Imams were very restrictive even for Muslims to pick up a Quran in a translated version to try and understand it for themselves. They were like very, very cautious to say, don't you even think about going down that route because you will misguide yourself. You've got to sit at the feet of teachers and scholars and learn it from us and hear it from us. Though that has changed now. So you can imagine what it would be like accessing other scripture. Mm. I think it's also about the level of knowledge and understanding, where for myself, I, I would never feel threatened by Jewish or Christian scripture because I can put it into context. I can put it in the place where it sits in relation to the later revelation, yeah. which is the Quran, whereas others may not. And they may fear either getting confused or even falling into doubt if they read something that contradicts what they've grown up with. And it's amazing, isn't it, that I find exactly the same on my side from the Jewish faith that many of my the people around me, Jewish people, wouldn't dream of picking up a Quran, wouldn't yeah. think about it. They think it's something completely other and the very little they know about it are the only phrases which are hostile, which seem hostile to Jewish people. And when you go and read the the, the thing and more, give it some context, read more about it, you find amazing passages, commentaries on Torah, explanations of Torah, which embellish and annotate and comment on Torah stories. So, On, on the flip side, if you, if you like, is from the Muslim community's point of view, in light of the tensions within the Holy Land between Israel and Palestine and Jews and Palestinians, 
it, it makes me wonder many times, say, the Quran speaks of the Banu Israel, the tribes of Israel, so fondly, like, you know, and it's one of the most, uh, if you like, favorite type of verses, uh, the, the way the Arabic intonation is, Ya Bani Israel, Guru. So all the people of Israel mention or remember or this, and yet we find the politics gets in the way of this really warm, the, the warmth that the Quran has towards the tribes of Israel, to Banu Israel. One of the things that we have in common, and I think perhaps one of the themes of this conversation is both the commonality and the difference, the sort of convergence and the divergence. And take the figure of Abraham or Ibrahim. To what extent do we, we always see him, I think, in the interfaith world as we're all children of Abraham. Yeah, yes, you know, I, or, I, yeah. I remember in yeah. light of what, what's going on in the Holy Lands and may God kind of bring peace and justice to the, to the land for all the people who, who live there. When we set up a group of Jews, Christians and Muslims to meet regularly in Leicester to dialogue, I insisted we're not going to call it anything but the family of Abraham. This is the family of Abraham. And I thought that would kind of help us along and maybe park the uh, thorny issue to one side. And did it? So I think within a, a meeting or two, we realized that it's not possible to meet with Jews and with Muslims and avoid Israel-Palestine. It's well, something that needs to be... But can we stick on Abraham for a yes, second? Please. Because it was something I really wanted to ask Sheikh Ibrahim, which is this. There's a verse in Quran, which I can just about get to the Arabic, but anyway, in the English translation, Do try. <laughs> it says, Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, yes. but he was one inclining toward truth, a Muslim. Hanifan Muslim. Muslim yes. yes, that's uh, Ali Imran, Surah 3, I think it's uh, yeah, you're right. 67. Yeah. yeah, good. So what does that mean? Yeah, so, so that one, if you look at it at face value, just from the translation that Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, but he was a Hanif, an absolute monotheist who turned to the truth and a Muslim. If you translate it that way, people will say, hang on, did I just hear that Abraham was a Muslim? He was Jewish or he was Christian. So we need to kind of go back a few verses and look at what precedes that particular argument that's being presented. So the verses prior to that talk about the invitation to people of the book to a common word that we worship none but God and that we associate none as partners unto him, etc. And then the Quran argues with the Jews and the Christians when they are argumentative about scripture. You have disputed about things of which you have knowledge of. You have scripture before you and you still dispute about this and that. And now you're disputing about something of which you have no knowledge. Do you not realize that the Torah and the Injil came much after Abraham? But there is a, another explanation of, to this is that Muslim... Yes, what is the word? What are we getting at here? ...literally means one who surrenders. Ah, so and the noun was, then is Muslim. Yeah, you so tell me it's with a small M and not with, a big a M. A small M would, be, would be right. So in some ways, I could, I would regard you as a Muslim. If I see you submit yeah. yourself to the commands of God, to be one. as yeah. you see, yeah. as you understand them as a Jewish person from Jewish teaching, because you're submitting to God in your tradition. And of course, there is the rabbinic interpretation that anyone who is not an idolater is a Jew. It's the same sort of thing that it's just saying, if you are a monotheist then we, we can include you. 
And it's meant as a positive, isn't it? If you're a, a monotheist as a Jew or a Christian, then we can call you a Muslim as a, as a compliment. And again, but it's very hard, isn't it? Because it very easily falls into being exclusive. You know, there's an exclusiveness about Judaism or a particularity about Judaism, Abraham, our father. Or in, in Islam, a claim to Ibrahim as the first Muslim. And in many Muslims' minds, it's a capital M. Yeah, that's correct. And yeah. likewise in Christianity, yeah. seeing, you know, Abe from Abraham to Christ, Abraham becomes a Christian figure. And I couldn't find anything in the Quran about Abraham, actually anything about in the Quran at all, which contradicted anything that I knew from Torah. I don't think there are any big contradictions between the two scriptures from what I've seen. Well, I think that's fascinating, and that brings us on to this, perhaps one of the most shocking stories and narratives in our scriptures, what Jews call the Akedah, the binding, the Akedat Yitzhak, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, and also, of course, a central story and narrative in Christian tradition, and likewise, in Islam, uh, the centrality of the sacrifice of Abraham's son. Now, in the Jewish liturgical cycle, it's read on Rosh Hashanah. Well, it's read during the cycle, of course, as part of the 54 parashiyot that go through the weekly cycle that we now read. But in addition, it's read on the first and second days of the Jewish New Year. Is, is there a special time of year in the Islamic calendar? Special festivals there are, isn't there? A special festival when uh, this story is, is, is Indeed. celebrated. Indeed. So, so the, way, the way we approach the Quran is that the recitation of the Quran is not tied to any specific time in the year. It's, it's recited every single day. There are certain chapters which are recited daily. Some chapters are recited weekly. But generally, Muslims would try and recite a few verses of the Quran on a daily basis. But when the festivals come, particularly when the time of Hajj, uh, the pilgrimage to Makkah comes, then uh, Abraham becomes most prominent in our discourse and in our sermons and in our lectures because Hajj is associated with Abraham and his family. And this is when we tell the stories of Abraham and his family and what the Quran says about it and, and why we do what we do. Well, I have a big question for you. I mean, apart from the obvious question is whether you think it was Isaac or Ishmael, which maybe oh, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But I, I've got another one, because if you go through the Quran, Hagar's name is not actually mentioned. And Ishmael is mentioned a few times. But if you go into Genesis 22 and 23, there they are, the full story, the full account day by day of uh, how she went into the wilderness the first time, came back, she went there again... The first time she was pregnant, the second time she went with her son Ishmael, line by line it gives it to you. And the Quran seems to be a sort of summary or embellishment in a few lines of the very great detail given in the Torah. So I wondered if you were going to read those chapters before you go on your Hajj. Yeah, so on my earlier visit to the Wolf Institute when I first came, Ed and I were in the library and I, I asked Ed some questions about this and Ed explained to me of how the Torah and how it's divided between the actual uh, sayings and the so you have the three the three part you have the Torah we have the Nevi'im the prophets and have the Ketuvim the writing so with the Quran it's just one and we believe it's God's speech the actual revealed word and what I found fascinating when I first began to do scripture reasoning was the detail in Jewish and Christian scripture like names of places names of people and dates and I thought wow there's very little geography in the Quran if you look at it, yeah. very few places are mentioned by name, Egypt and Makkah and the Holy Land. And, 
you know, not much else. And when you look at individuals as well, even the messengers and prophets, we, we believe some 124,000 came into this world. To The Quran keeps it very generally. Every community was sent a prophet. Mm. But only 25 are mentioned by name. So I, I think the, the Quran's approach is more of laying the principles, giving you just an idea of who the characters were or where they were. And I think the, I, I feel it's deliberate attempt to move us away from focusing on individuals to focusing on the issue. So when it comes to the Qurban, the sacrifice of Abraham's son, it's not about was it Isaac or was it Ishmael. Yeah. It's about the willingness to sacrifice your dearest to please God. So I think that's, to my mind, the, the Quran's approach to some of these issues. What we're going to do is we're going to hear the accounts of Genesis 22 and, and the Surah in uh, English, in Hebrew and in Arabic. Genesis 22, 1-14 Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son and the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Quran, Surah 37, Asafat, verses 100 to 133. My Lord, give me one of the righteous. So we gave him good news of a clement boy. Then, when he was old enough to accompany him, he said, O oh my son, I see in a dream that I'm sacrificing you. See what you think. He said, O oh my father, do as you are commanded. You will find me, God willing, one of the steadfast. Then when the head submitted and he put his forehead down, we called out to him, O oh Abraham, you have fulfilled the vision. Thus we reward the doers of good. This was certainly an evident test. And we redeemed him with a great sacrifice. And we left with him for later generations Peace be upon Abraham. Thus we reward the doers of good. He was one of our believing servants. And we gave him good news of Isaac, a prophet, one of the righteous. And we blessed him and Isaac. 
but among their descendants are some who are righteous and some who are clearly unjust to themselves. And we blessed Moses and Aaron, and we delivered them and their people from the terrible disaster, and we supported them, and so they were the victors. And we gave them the clarifying scripture, and we guided them upon the straight path, and we left with them for later generations. Peace be upon Moses and Aaron. Thus we reward the righteous. They were our believing servants. Also Elijah was one of the messengers. He said to his people, Do you not fear? Do you call on Baal and forsake the best of creators? God is your Lord and the Lord of your ancestors. But they called him a liar, and thus they will be brought forward, except for God's sincere servants, and we left with him for later generations. Peace be upon the house of Elijah, thus we reward the virtuous. He was one of our believing servants, and Lot was one of the messengers. Welcome back. And thanks to Miriam for her readings from the Torah and the Quran. We're talking about the sacrifice of Abraham's son. And of course, there is this debate about who the son is. In, in, in the Bible, it's very clearly identified as Isaac. And in the Quran, it's just Abraham's son. And there's been some debate, of course, about which son. And I wonder whether you can take us through that a little bit. We have a conversation about who is that son. And you were saying before the break that it doesn't really matter. So for some it will really matter if, <laughs> if they want to take the kind of confrontational approach to say, no, the, the Jews are wrong, it was Ishmael, and the, the Muslims are wrong, it was Isaac. But the Quran doesn't disclose the name. It just talks about the son who was a gift from God and etc. So we have uh, the commentaries, what we call the tafsir collections, and they are minority voices, even within Muslim scholarship, who say that the son was Isaac. A vast majority of us would settle for Ishmael. Perhaps there is some historical way of ascertaining that, that uh, Hagar and Ishmael were in, in that part of the world, etc. But there's also an interesting aspect to tafsir within Muslim tradition that the Quran explains itself one way. And that's the, that's the primary, that's primary, the primary hermeneutic, isn't it? That's correct. And then we have the hadith collections, which give us the explanation. But we have also what we call the Israeliyat, the Jewish sources, which fill in the gaps, if you like. So for, for a historical filling in of the gaps, I would not hesitate using the Israeliyat and the Jewish sources, because the way you have recorded things and the way your scriptures detail people's names and places and dates, etc., is a wonderful uh, resource for me to plug in any holes that I might find and to find a flaw in the narrative. The only exception would be if there was a contradiction with regards to aqidah, as in the belief. If there's something contrary to Muslim belief, then we would reject that. But otherwise, we ought to be embracing these historic records or, or writings which help us to paint a fuller picture of exactly what happened. There's one very interesting tiny difference between the Torah and the Quran that I saw, which is that in the Torah it doesn't say that Isaac 
knew he was going to be sacrificed. He actually asked some questions. He said, uh, yeah. we've got the wood and we've got the stuff and we're going up there, but where's the thing to be sacrificed? So and he Abraham's was in the dark. Father, he was in the dark. Wow. He said, don't worry, God will provide the sacrifice. And off they went. Next moment, he was, sacri- was ready to sacrifice him, which is different to the very, Quran, very where different. it says that Abraham and his son were both ready. And the interesting thing about this is that the poem that we read after we read the Torah text on Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, immediately afterwards we read this absolutely beautiful poem. The poem says that Abraham and Isaac were ready for the sacrifice. They both knew about the sacrifice. And do you know why? Because it was written in Cordoba, in 12th century Cordoba, where there was a lot of Muslim-Jewish interaction. Even before then, even before then, so the, uh, one of the earliest Midrashim, Genesis Rabbah, which is 5th, 6th century Palestinian Midrash, uses the phrase that's specified in the text for Yelchu Shnechem Yachtav, the two of them go together. It's said twice, the two of them go together. And the rabbis interpret that one to sacrifice, one to be sacrificed, that they actually knew what was going on. So a later interpretation, probably pre-Islamic, was that actually Isaac knew what was happening. Now that that differs from the biblical account, of course, or it reinterprets the biblical account. But it does suggest that they were equal in some way. Fascinating. If that were the case with the Quran, I, I would lose a very powerful way of teaching a lesson, particularly to young people and to parents. So what I do with my preaching is I use this verse, which shows the dynamic between a father and a son and what it ought to be for us with our own children, with our own parents. And the language is absolutely fascinating. So as, as you would know, Ibnun in Arabic means son, and Ibni would be my son. Yet the Quran, Abraham uses the word Ya Bunayya, my beloved son type of thing, like you know, my darling son. I've seen in my dream and this is what happens. And then Ishmael then, in, in according to our interpretation, responds to his father, say, instead of saying ab, meaning father or abi, my father say, ya abati, you know, my, my mm. beloved, respected father, do as you have been there's commanded. An, there's an intimacy there, Absolutely, isn't there? Which yeah. again, actually mirrors the biblical account. Yeah, asher ahavta et itzak. Yes, the, the, one, the son. et bincha et, et yehidcha, asher, asher ahavta. Take yeah. your son, yeah. uh, your beloved son, your unique son, is a, it's, it's extended, yeah. it, it, re, it reinforces that affection. And also Isaac's response when Abraham, uh, he, Isaac says, Abba, father, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very intimate relationship yeah. between the father and the son. And it mirrors what, what you've just said. Interesting. It's really, uh, th- that, that story is, it's so powerful. For parents who are unable to respect the wishes of their children, uh, I mean, the, the father could easily have dragged him into the hills and sacrificed him. Ah, but now we get onto the question of the age of Isaac. Now, this is a big debate in rabbinic writings. How old was Isaac? Um, the Hebrew term has na'ah in, in Genesis 22, which just means lad or youth. And the rabbis have a lot of fun, don't they, Rick, identifying how old he is. But do you know what they say? Good. They, they identify him. They say, how old is Isaac? They say he was either 25 36 or 37. Now, this is remarkable. And we can explain, I can tell you a little bit about the reasons why, but the implication is he's an adult. And it changes the story completely if it's the son who's a very young child 
to an adult who offers himself up. So there's all sorts of interesting echoes with the Christian story, but also listening to what you've just said, Ibrahim, about the involvement of the son in, in, in the sacrifice. The Christian story as in, in with regards to Jesus or with yes, regards to yes. yes, because there giving, is, yeah, I that's see. That's right. Yeah. There, isn't, there, there are a number of interpretations in the, in the Midrash including an eighth-century midrash called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which says that the angel was too late and his soul went up to heaven and then came back immediately. And there are all these interpretations which kind of, you know, in a Christian-Jewish conversation can be teased out. But in this conversation, the fact that they, both the rabbinic and the Islamic interpretations emphasize the voluntary nature of the sacrifice of the son by the sun is remarkable. It's also quite frightening, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the, the word in the, the Quran is sa'ya is the word used and it's interpreted just like the rabbis have had their debates, <laughs> ulama have had their debates, the mufassirun, the exegetes have had their debates about the age of Ishmael in our case. And the closest that maybe one could establish the age is a, an age of a young lad who is strong enough to carry out the chores and the duties of a, a shepherd's family, if you like. You know, strong enough to do the laborer's farm work, if you like. He would still be a teenager, for in our but case. But old enough to run away uh, if he wanted to. He could have run away, yes. So I think many scholars would probably put him around the early teens, uh, where he understands what he's presenting himself for. He knows that this means this is the end of me. And yet he and his father have both submitted and have surrendered to the will of God. Sheikh Ibrahim, what really in Islam is the point of the whole sacrifice story? So the, the whole point is submission to the will of God. That for Abraham, he could have turned around and said, it's just a dream, it's, I, I saw a nightmare, that's it. And uh, put it out of his mind. But the belief that the the dreams of a prophet, of a messenger, is also revelation. For Abraham, this was a clear instruction from God that I gifted you this son when you were about 100 years old. Then what's no the significance hope. of God then stopping Abraham just before? So he... this was the test. As uh, the, the Quran then continues to say us that as he lay his son down and they both surrendered, and about to take his life, God called out to Abraham, you have indeed fulfilled the instruction given to you in the dream. And he and his son both passed with flying colors that they had demonstrated to God that we were willing to give our life for you and take life for you. And I think that's the lesson for us, that today God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children, but there are certain things that we must sacrifice so our desire to do wrong and our desire to fulfill our own selfish and sinful and wrongful wishes and all that. That's the sacrifice that is asked today, to sacrifice a bit of the wealth that God has blessed us with and share it with the poor and the needy. So it's those kinds of sacrifices, not the ultimate sacrifice of... Imagine this 100-year-old man his only support is this teenage lad who's doing all the housework, who's doing all the farm work, and now, and now I have to take his life. My goodness. Yet he didn't stop to think of that. It 
is such a problem though, isn't it? Isn't it a bit of a cop-out, whether it's the Muslim or the Jewish interpretation that simply says, oh well, you know, it proves that we should sacrifice sin, we should give up, you know, we should offer ourselves up to God. And, and the point, it's such a horrible story. I mean, shouldn't we be challenging this story? I mean, one of the reasons why the story of the sacrifice of Abraham's son, whether it's the Akedah or the account in the, in the Quran, is the horror of that story. And it remains part of our culture. I've got the parable of the old man and the young, the Wilfred Owen, the First World War poet, and a very powerful poem that he wrote about the sacrifice of Abraham's son. So Abraham rose and cleaved the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife. And as they sojourned, both of them together, Isaac, the firstborn, spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abraham bound the youth with belts and straps and builded parapets and trenches there and stretched forth the knife to slay his son. When, lo, an angel called him out of heaven, saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. Behold, a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Offer the ram of pride instead of him. But the old man would not so, but slew his son, and half the seed of Europe, one by one. It, it, it's become part of our culture, but partly because it's so horrific. <laughs> oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but... Uh, And that's Bob Dylan's take on the story. I'm in August company, and I hesitate to ask my guests if they like it, but I think it packs a lot of punch. And isn't it a cop-out just saying that, oh, it's, 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 it's okay? Shouldn't we actually reject the story? Isn't there a, a case to say, no, we don't sacrifice our children? There was a very nice explanation of the late Chief Rabbi Hertz, and what he said was that you had to see it in the context of the time where child sacrifice in pagan culture was very common. And by preventing Abraham at the last minute from sacrificing his son, this was a clear message that child sacrifice is not an acceptable... Because God was waiting for Abraham to say no. I mean, we know Abraham challenged God, according to the Bible anyway. And Abraham just carried on. It was only at the last possible moment that God knew Abraham wasn't going to say no. And he stopped. Yeah, but if in the case of the Quran, it's, it's very different. It's, it's actually... It's impossible for us to, to reject this because the words of the Quran talk about when both father and son surrendered themselves to God and the father kind of lovingly lays his son down on the side of his cheek now ready to run the knife on his throat. The books of Hadith actually talk about Abraham struggling with the knife and the knife refusing to cut. So, so much did he want to do it. Yeah. The same in the rabbinic, right? So I, I think uh, in the modern era, we, we are kind of shocked by this, perhaps, but I, I quite like the explanation that Rick has shared with us, that 
perhaps in that culture, this was seen as as the acceptable thing to do. If we think of child sacrifice today in in the 21st centuries, it would shock yeah. uh, almost everybody. Yeah, and that end of the of the sacrifice ends in the Torah and I think in the Quran, but you can tell us, with the Abraham seeing a ram caught in a bo- with its thickets in a bush and he goes and sacrifices the ram. And that is that the basis of the sacrifice at the end of Hajj? Indeed. indeed. So in, in Muslim tradition, the Quran explains that a, an animal was sent down from the heavens and that is what Abraham sacrificed. Uh, an animal, not specifically. It doesn't a ram. say whether it's a it's a ram or. And in the Hajj, at the end of Hajj, you sacrifice. So, what, and it can be any animal. Could be a camel, cow, yeah. goat, sheep, lamb, etc. So the sacrifice is done not just by the pilgrims in Mecca at the end of the Hajj, but it's also done by Muslims all over the world who have a minimum amount of wealth, and they would sacrifice the animal and shared uh, the meat with friends and family and neighbours. And I remember as a child growing up in Malawi, we'd go with my father in an open pickup truck to the villages and we'd buy a number of goats several months before the festival of Eid al-Adha and we'd keep them in their pen at home, we'd give them grain and water and grass, we'd play with them as children and we'd grow fond of the animal. And that's the whole point, that you attach, you become attached to this animal and then you sacrifice it with your hands. You feel the, the pain mm-hmm. of loss. And it's very sad here in the UK, given our uh, health and welfare and all the other issues, which are very important, uh, our children don't get to see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our children okay. probably think uh, they would wonder where, where the meat comes from. They wouldn't be able to say where the meat comes from. So this is the, the whole point uh, that you... You, you give up something dear to you, something... So today, uh, buying a, a lamb, uh, f- for us here in the UK, it's, it's no big deal. Uh, you know, with God's blessings, we've been given plenty. You won't even feel a pain in, in your heart or, of loss or anything. But that attachment, yeah, that and was... And I wanted uh, to ask you another thing about the Hajj, which is the, the walking seven times around the Kaaba. Yes. Where does that come from? That is a practice of Abraham again. So Abraham was initially instructed by God to say, call out to people to come here on pilgrimage. And Abraham said, God, this is a barren desert. Like, who's going to come here? And the commentators say that it was Abraham's job to make the call and it was up to God to make people here. And we still say today, those who said Labbaik, those who said, here I am, uh, I'm present, make the pilgrimage. And the Quran says people will come to you on every lean camel. Even if they've got a banger to, to get here, they're going to come here from, from far off places. Your Hajj is very similar to the word we use for our festivals, Chag. And in, I believe in Hebrew and Arabic, those two words can also mean going around. Going around. And actually in Judaism, on the festival of Sukkot, Chag Sukkot, we do circuits. And on Hashanah Rabbah, the seventh day, we end up doing seven circuits. We go anti-clockwise. As we do. Yes, as you do. do. So very similar. As you know, I love these similar words, Hag. We had Shekhina and Sakina. Hag, Akeda, and, and, and Hag. Uh, Korban, sorry. Korban, yeah, you were used a lot. Or between Darasa and Derasha to seek, study, or inquire, or a Madrasa and Midrash, the schools of study. 
and or sharia and halakha, the way to, means a path, way to go, which becomes the law, or even sadaka and tzedaka, meaning charity. All those words just come from the same root and show the whole heritage being coming from the same place. We're, we're drawing to a, a close now, and what we've done in a way is have a, a drush. Um, have this sort of uh, interpretation and the, the sharing of the similar ideas and, and the different ideas. And I suppose before I ask the question, which I would of each of you, so what? But before I ask that, just tell us about what happened at the death of Abraham and the burial of Abraham. Oh, yeah. Well, we discussed before earlier which son was it that he sacrificed? Was it Isaac or was it Ishmael? Anyway, the two of them, they went their separate ways yes. and they came together to bury their father. And in the Torah it says in the cave of Machpelah, but to bury their father, they were standing together. And again in the Torah afterwards, uh, in the burial of Isaac, who had two sons who also were contested between each other, Jacob and Esau, they both buried their father, Isaac, showing a kind of uh, ultimate respect that even if you end up going separate ways, your heritage is very similar. And I like those stories because they show the two of them coming together to bury their father. Mm. We, we don't have that account, in the, certainly not in the Quran. I've not had a chance to look it up in the Hadith collections, but it's one of, this could be an ideal example of the, uh, accessing the Israeliyat, the Jewish uh, historic writings for this kind of information. And as a Muslim, I would it would delight me to, to read that, to say both brothers came together and paid their respect to their father and laid him to rest. It's, it's very well, that, sounds like, that sounds like our homework, doesn't it, at the end of this. So, so uh, Sheikh Ibrahim, tell us, in the work that you do, you do a lot of work engaging between Muslim and non-Muslim communities, particularly actually Muslims and Jews. Um, my father always used to say to me, so what? So, so what have we achieved in this little conversation and what can we achieve in the Muslim-Jewish conversation? Not, I'm not interested in a platitude, but in terms of substance, because there are things. Um, we started off by talking about what we have in common and how we manage difference, but I, I wonder in your experience, in your work, what difference does this really make to you as a Muslim and to you as someone engaged in dialogue? Yes, I, I hear Muslims often refer to Jews as our cousins. And I dearly wish for us to be sincere when we say that, that we have a common father in Abraham. We are cousins. We have to love one another and live together as brothers and sisters, uh, manage our differences, which, which are political. And uh, politics is always going to be divisive. But our, both our religions and our religious traditions are such that they bring us closer together. And the more I learn from the Torah, the more I learn from Jewish friends, the closer I, I feel to both the religion and to the people. That This is something that the Quran has already told us, that the, the Torah and the Injil are scriptures that we have revealed to people in the past, and it's a revelation from us. Yeah, I think uh, that this study that we've done together, it really serves to reduce the suspicion of the unknown, yeah. the suspicion of madrasa, just that word, you know, in the English press, Gosh, that we're talking yeah. about terrible <laughs> madrasas, but madrasa yeah. to a Jewish person, when you realize that it's the same word as derasha that people do in your synagogue every, every week or every day, 
or that uh, terrible Sharia law, very, you know, everybody's very concerned with the Sharia law going everywhere. Sharia really means like way to go. It's like yes, Sharia is like a street. Yes. A path a to path. a water source. Okay. Yes. It's the same as Halakha, Holech, path to a place uh, in Judaism. And all these connections with all these, just the words, you realize how these two religions have the same ultimate root and uh, the same source. And that makes me, at any rate, less nervous about looking at uh, Islam. It makes you able to see good sides of all religions, but especially Judaism and Islam that are so neatly connected. Thank you, Rick Sofa, Sheikh Ibrahim, for joining me on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute, Keep up to date with the latest Encounter episodes by clicking subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider.